Pastor Mai, good afternoon. You're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. I'm Dolan Mercer, here with you until two o'clock, and William King joins me, who is this week's producer. This afternoon, we're meeting five special guests, all five Manx residents who received honours in the Queen's birthday honours list last week. If you're listening live, we'd love you to get involved. You can send us your thoughts on anything you hear and ask questions to our guests. You can text us on 166167. You can email studio at manxradio.com. You can use the hashtag MRPerspective on social media. But first, before we speak to our first guest, time to find out a bit more about the honours system. William King has been taking a look. The honours system in the United Kingdom goes back as far as the Norman Conquest of 1066. However, it wasn't until 1917 when ordinary Britons began to be recognised. It was George V who, following the First World War, founded the Order of the British Empire to honour non-combatants whose service would have otherwise gone unrecognised. Honours are awarded twice a year, in the New Year and on the monarch's official birthday in June. The highest honour which can be awarded is a knighthood. Men who receive knighthoods are addressed as Sir and Women Dame. There are no Manx recipients this year. However, Sir Miles Walker, the first Chief Minister, was knighted in 1997, and our current Governor, Sir Richard Gosney, also holds a knighthood. Manx-born Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees was recently knighted, putting a new meaning to the term Knight Fever. Another type of honour which Her Majesty the Queen, Lord of Man, can bestow is an Order of the British Empire. This comes in three ranks, Commander, Officer and Member of the British Empire. This year, Isle of Man resident and 60s songwriter Mitch Murray becomes a CBE. Former Chief Ministers Alan Bell, Donald Gelling and Sir Miles Walker all hold this title as well. In the birthday honours announced last week, President of Tinwood's Steve Roden is made an officer of the British Empire. He follows in the footsteps of his predecessors Claire Christian, Noel Kringle and Sir Charles Carouche, all of whom have been given this title previously. Sir Charles Carouche, a knight as well of course. Former Chief Minister Tony Brown and watchmaker Roger W Smith also hold OBEs. Two Manx residents become members of the British Empire this year, with Ivor Ramsden and Tonya Lushington receiving the honour. Other island residents who are MBEs include Jeff Corkish, former MLC, and Ian Clegg, Deputy Mayor of Douglas, who conducts Manx Concert Brass. The final Isle of Man resident receiving an honour this year is Tony Fox, who has been awarded the British Empire Medal. The medal was founded in 1917 for meritorious actions by civilians or military personnel. In 1993, it was scrapped by John Major, but revived in 2012. Previous Manx recipients of the BEM include Mike Hewley, former Clerk of Port Erin Commissioners, Julian Power, a musician on Ireland who was recently musical director for Les Miserables, and Jim Krebin, conductor emeritus of Russian Silver Band. Other honours include the Royal Victorian Order, Royal Victorian Medal and Royal Red Cross as well as the Queen's Police, Fire Service and Ambulance Service Medals, which are awarded to distinguished officers in the emergency services. In the UK, on Her Majesty's official birthday last week, actor Olivia Colman became a commander of the British Empire 
and Bear Grylls, an officer of the British Empire. Guramayed William King for that. So, to the first of our guests. Tony Fox has been awarded a British Empire Medal for services to medical charities and the community of the island. For more than 40 years, Mr Fox has raised funds for many good causes, including Manx Charities, Coronary Care at both Nobles Hospital and Broad Green in Liverpool, and Robert Owen House. Perhaps most significantly, though, he's raised more than £100,000 for the liver unit at Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. Earlier this week, Mr Fox told me the inspiration for his efforts comes from his late wife, whose legacy he's looking to continue after her liver failure and treatment five years ago. Our story originated from when my wife needed a transplant and she was referred to the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham, where she eventually got the transplant. Unfortunately, somebody else had to die for Anne to live on. We got seven months out of it before things went wrong. Nothing to do with the transplant. She took a clot when she was in critical care and they were going to disperse the clot, but unfortunately the clot broke away and went to her heart. And she had a massive heart attack just, and that was, that was it. She organised the first dinner for the 15th of November, 14, and my wife organised it from home. And she'd done an excellent job. Anne was a fantastic woman. And... Um, she died three days after the dinner. She told us the dinner had to go ahead. She said the dinner had to go ahead. We couldn't cancel it. The dinner was a complete sellout. And with the rest of the family and so on and so on, it went ahead and we raised a massive £25,000 on the night. And the money is still coming in. We do a lot of charity work through the year. We're on a couple of dinners a year. We're raffling a car this year. And uh, we're hoping to raise a lot more money for the Organox machine. Um, the Organox machine that my wife started the charity off for, which we now run under the Queen Elizabeth charity, uh, it's known as the Anne Fox Foundation. And it's run under the umbrella of the Queen Elizabeth. And the Anne Fox Foundation, the money that we raise is ring fence for the liver transplant unit. doesn't go anywhere else. And everything goes into the liver transplant unit. They managed to purchase the Organox machine, I think it was last September, October. So the machine's in place in the hospital and they've done up to 10, 11 transplants with it at the minute. And these people are living on because of the machine. Without the machine, they wouldn't have got the transplant. Some fairly boggling amounts of money that have been raised by yourself over the past few years. Um, That money goes like you say, to facilitating these operations in Birmingham, first yes. of all, is that right? That's correct, yes. We've raised in the region of £125,000. It's hard work, don't get me wrong. It's very, very time-consuming, but we have to carry on what my wife started off. Um, she started it and she left us to carry it on, and that's what we're doing. And hopefully people are living on from what we're doing. A question you've perhaps partly answered already. Um, what drives you to do this work? What drives me to do the work, it's, it's my, my daughter, Andrea, and myself, the two of us, we're having a big committee and my son helps out, Stephen helps out wherever he can. We're having a big fundraising committee or anything else behind us. You know, it's all, it's all down to the family, really. 
And with drives, is, is we, we've seen where my wife got to in 13, 14, and we're just trying to help other people through the situation that we went through. And until you're in that situation, you just don't know. When you're in the outside looking in, it's completely different. But once you get in and you see what's going on, and I know other charities are to the forefront, and but liver disease is very high, very, very high. And there's an awful lot of people that suffer from liver disease in all different formats. Uh, where my wife was an autoimmune disease, um, her body was attacking her liver, seeing her liver as a foreign body, and it attacked her liver until her liver just was finished and she needed the transplant. We knew this in the beginning when she was diagnosed. They told us they gave her 15 years. She got 22 years before she needed the transplant. And, and there's no guarantees you will get a transplant because organs don't sit in the shelf. Somebody else has to die for somebody else to live on. And in the face of adversity, we had to carry on from tragedy into good and help other people. And that's what we're aiming to do, and that's what we're aiming to carry on to do, told them. Do you meet a lot of people who are who are in a similar kind of scenario or going through similar things? We do, yeah. There's a lot of people on the island. It's it's hard to believe, but I, I don't know the exact figures, but there's people on the island that I've came across and become, become friendly with who's had transplants in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. And some of them have long, long stories to tell and similar to ourselves. And some of them have been the brink of going out of this world. And um, so late a couple of years ago, and this is another thing that people don't realize, she needed a transplant. She was told she wouldn't get an organ that she needed. So there was only one thing was going to happen there. And our brother stepped in and he said he wanted to test it to see if he could do life donor. And he was an exact match for Trez. For those perhaps who, who don't know, it's not that you can just have, have any organ, is it? There's, there's sort of certain requirements that, that make things when, compatible, is that right? That's correct, yeah. When the, the surgeons have to match the organ up to the person that requires it. And there's no guarantees. And there's no guarantees, even though when they're offered the organ, that surgery's going to go ahead. They'll contact the patient and they'll tell the patient, they'll ask the patient to come into hospital and they'll say, there's an organ become available. But until the surgeon that's doing the transplant sees the organ, he won't say that the operation's going to go ahead. He has to make sure that that organ is 100%. He has to make sure the organ's 100%. And that's where the Organox machine comes in now. If the organ isn't 100%, they won't use it. So that organ's rejected. And it's it's lost, really. With the Organox machine now, the Organox machine, they can put the organ into the machine. The organ can be fused, can be perfused in the machine. And they actually can put uh, medication into the machine now that will break down the fats in the liver where people could be walking about healthy but with fatty livers and this breaks the fat down in the liver and when the, when everything comes to fruition it's comes out 100 percent so in, in short it's making potentially unusable organs 
usable for people. Is, 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 that, is that correct? That's or? correct, yeah. These organs, when they come in, they can be put into the machine. The patient is told about what's going to happen and about the organ and about the machine. And at the end of the day, there's no downside to it. If somebody's been told they're not going to get an organ, or an organ mightn't come in time for them and they run out of road. And a lot of people do run out of road because there's only so many organs become available. And people are very sceptical about signing up to organ donation. And what a lot of people don't realise on the island here that they'll mark their driving licence and they'll put down that they want to be a donor on their driving licence. But the Manx licence, unfortunately, isn't recognised in the donor register in the UK. So they have to register online to make sure if they want to be a donor that it, it can go ahead. Just just off mic before we started talking, you were saying one of your most often asked questions is why does this money go to a UK institution and not to nobles? And you said there's a very sort of straightforward answer to that really. Yes. When we're out and about and we're collecting money while we're doing the raffles and people will come up and approach us and say, Well, why are you collecting money on the Aleman for the liver transplant unit in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham, why not Noble's Hospital? Well, the defined answer to that is that Noble's Hospital hasn't got a liver transplant unit. And the patients from Noble's are referred to Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham if they've got liver disease. We should probably move on to some pretty severe recognition that you've been given for all of your work over the years. Um, been awarded a British Empire Medal. What happens from your point of view, in terms of collecting that award, do you have to go away to, to, to any kind of official meetings or anything like that? No, it's, it's, it's early days. It's a bit, of a bit of a shock. When we started on our journey, when we started on our journey, we didn't anticipate that we would be recognised with a, a British Empire medal. It was the last thing in our minds. Well, the work that we'd done, we weren't doing it for gratification or to be recognised. We were just doing it to help people. And then this come along and we were, I was offered the British Empire Medal, which I'm accepting on my wife's behalf. It was a big shock. It was a big shock. So far, this only happened last Friday night. I, I knew a while before it, but it was told in strict confidence that nobody had to be told. And for <laughs> it was very hard to keep in, so it was, you know, very hard to keep in. And then I was told I could tell one family member, which I told my daughter. I couldn't tell my son, I couldn't tell my grandkids, you know. You were meeting people every day and they were discussing different things with you and you just wanted to burst it out to them, you know, that what's happened, you know, coming from tragedy to glorification and everything else goes along with it. And um, we were at the Queen's birthday reception at Government House where we met the Lieutenant Governor and his lady wife. We had a nice evening there. As far as I know, and from what I've been told, I will be presented, uh, the investiture will take place in Government House probably around September, October time. And um, I'll be presented with the medal and so on. And I know you said that, obviously, the reasons for raising these sums of money weren't for recognition from other people, but nice to... To be honoured in that way, I suppose, you would you would feel. Yeah, it is nice to be honoured in that way. Like I said earlier in the conversation there, we didn't start off to get recognition. We, we started off to do good for other people and try and help people as best we could. 
and help all their families out of away from tragedy maybe that we actually experienced ourselves you know and that's that was what we did getting the medal it's a thing that i never ever thought that i would ever envisage in my lifetime really you know i never ever thought that i would be awarded a british empire medal you know it was the last thing from my mind really and it's it's hard to take on board different people who said different things to me you know and uh, it's very hard you know, when people come up to you and say, oh, fantastic, and they're congratulating you. And people, I've got loads and loads of cards and loads of messages through different channels, social media and so on and so on. And people there's people are coming up and they're saying, it's very well deserved, you deserve it, you've, you've done an awful lot. But it wasn't only myself, it was my daughter too and my son. It's a team. When this team started off, in 2014, there was four of us in it. There was my wife, Anne, and there was my daughter, Andrea. And there was another gentleman, unfortunately, he's not with us anymore, and a lot of people in Nailamon probably know of him, and he'd done a lot of charity work himself, and he was uh, Mr. Brian Keenan from the Empress Hotel. And Brian pushed us along the road, he motivated us, he do, did whatever he could to help us. And um, unfortunately, from the four, now there's only two. And people will joke with us and say, that's not a good team to be part of, you know. That's <laughs> not a good team. But we, we're soldiering on. And Bran did, after my wife died, Bran, he was behind us, pushing us all the time, you know. And because from where we come from, we came from a bad place to a really, really good place, you know. And, and it's... I think it's fantastic and it helps us along the road. It helps us when we hear all the good stories that's coming out from what we're doing. It's it's fantastic. You know that other people are living on. These young people with a young family that maybe they were going to lose a member of their family, you know, and it's the, the stories are really, really good, Dolan. You know, even when my wife was in the Queen Elizabeth early 14, January 14, we had heard of a young baby on the island that needed a transplant. And it needed a transplant from what was born, really, you know. And uh, and we heard then in January 14, its parents had been back and forward. Organs had come in and they flew over, but the organ wasn't right, so they had to come home again. So one minute they were above the clouds and the next minute they were down in the gutter really you know and it's very very hard for people to take out on board you know there's a lot of stress a lot of pressure but when we were out doing our charity work and selling a couple of years ago we were doing the raffle for another car we did and we were in tesco's selling the raffle tickets and this lady came up to me and she says, oh, I'll have a couple of books. And she started talking about the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. And I says, do you know the Queen Elizabeth? And she says, yeah, yeah. She says, my grandson had a transplant. And it was the young fellow that was just talking about the baby, you know. And she said he was, I think that particular day I was talking to her, he was starting nursery school that day, you know. And I, I said, it was really hard. When you hear stories like that, you say, fantastic, you know, really, really good, you know. It, it gives you a bit of a boost and gives you a kick to move on then, just, you know, and to keep driving on. Have there ever been days where you've considered giving up or, or been close to, to packing it in? 
sometimes, like I said earlier on the conversation, sometimes it is very, very hard. It is, it is hard, you know. And there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure on, especially my daughter. She she does a lot of the paperwork and so on and so on. And it is very pressurized. But when you hear the stories coming out from where the the Organox machine and they call it the Fox machine in Birmingham. And f- when you hear the stories coming back from it, if you are down, it gives you a boost and it gives you, it just gives you a, a kick to move on again, just, you know. That was Tony Fox, British Empire Medal, there speaking to me earlier this week. The Nation Station, Master Mai, you're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. Up next, for over 25 years, Ivor Ramsden has made an outstanding contribution to the social and military history of Manx people by establishing in his spare time the Manx Aviation and Military Museum. He's catalogued more than 9,000 items in the museum and created a unique set of personal histories and records. He uses these freely to help others, including visitors, schools, community groups, families and individuals from across the island and beyond. The exemplary levels of conservation, display and customer service have helped tourism on the Isle of Man and to establish useful useful links with UK museums. For services to Manx Heritage and Tourism, Ivor Ramsden is made an MBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours list this year. Um, Mr Ramsden joins us in the in the studio. Good afternoon. First Hello. Um, first and foremost, where's where does your interest in, in all things aviation and military stem from? Well, it, it, I've looked at this and I think it goes back to when I was a child and I used to build airfix kits, sticking model aeroplanes together and hanging them from the ceiling as so many of us do. Uh, and it's grown over the years into a general interest in history and archaeology. And when we moved to the island back in 1991, um, I uh, the house that we bought was actually an old radio station for the pre-war airport or airfield. And that fired my interest up on the local uh, aviation scene, and it, it went from there, really. Got together with a group of people who were uh, had similar interests. And I've got to say that the museum is not just me. It's, it is a, a group of people without whom it would never have happened. Uh, and it's grown, really, from 2000 when we first opened. Um, so what, what did the museum look like um to begin with in its in its formative stages <laughs> formative stages it was well when we first took the building on from the department of transport as it was on it was something of a shed it was an old bungalow uh, which had been used by the fire service for fire practice so it hadn't been used to it, it hadn't been burnt but it was very dirty very damp and uh, there was a very disturbing sort of dummy person laid in a corridor and every time we went in in the darkness and saw this apparent corpse it caused a bit of an adrenaline shot <laughs> soon got rid of that. Uh, we refurbished the building and um, we've had to extend it three times already because of the sheer amount of material that's come into us. Um, you've mentioned the amount of material and where do you source the um, the objects and the displays from? Or, or, yeah, the, the objects, we don't actively source them really. I mean, it's much down to the local people who bring them into us and there's never really a week goes by without something coming into the museum. It might just be a button or it might be a, a tea chest full of absolute treasure. Um, and is there some sort of selective process whereby some things aren't accepted? Well, we, we try to be as generous as we can, if you like, because, you know, if we turn down something 
that is significant to somebody, they might not bring in Grandad's Victoria across the next time. So we, we, we try not to turn too much away. Um, no, provided it's got a link with the Isle of Man, then we'll we'll have it basically. Um, yeah. And then from sort of individual pieces, then um, there's also sort of a, a role in curating exhibitions as as a whole with with themes. How do the ideas for those come about? Yeah, well, it, it, they, they don't take a lot of effort, to be honest. There's so many things have happened on the Isle of Man with regards to aviation and, and military over the last hundred years that the, the themes are there. It's, you know, you don't have to look very hard. Um, if we double the size of the museum, I could still fill it with the, with the stories of local people and events. It's absolutely incredible what's gone on on the island. Um, and well, probably a difficult question, do you, do you have any sort of favourite themes or exhibitions o- over the years? No, not particularly. I don't have a particular... I'm not a collector myself. I've just got a general interest, and I just try to display the things as as best I can. I've, I've got to say that I am very, very pleased with the World War One exhibition that we did. That is, it, It's so atmospheric. I mean, it, it really does get to people. Uh, it got to me while I was putting it together. It, uh, it really does tell the story. And I am told that it's one of the best exhibitions of its type anywhere. So... Uh, that's a little score for the Isle of Man. And um, I, I came down to speak to you about that, I think, at the time when it was sort of opening. Um, it contains lots of personal stories from um, from Manx servicemen. So there's, I mean, we live on an island. There, there are there are links to these people still in in their sort of descendants as well. Exactly, yeah. They, they, so many families have, have kept their family heirlooms, but and so many of them have been generous and given them to us. Most of them actually given to the museum because I always say that whatever comes into the museum is in our keeping for or our custodianship for the future of the Isle of Man. It doesn't belong to us personally. It belongs to everybody on the Isle of Man. Uh, some things are loaned to us, which is fine. People can have them back on request. Um, but the the core collection has you know everything has been donated. And um, with regards to maybe communicating with other institutions, do you, do you take much inspiration perhaps from museums over overseas or? Um, I wouldn't say inspiration. Uh, one of the downsides of having worked for so long with the Manx Aviation and Military Museum is whenever I go on holiday and look around a local museum or a national museum, I do it with a very critical eye these days. And I have to say some of them aren't up to much. The standards of presentation and even conservation aren't so good. And there's lots of talk about accredited museums when you have to go through a big tick box exercise and prove that you do things by the book. And a lot of these accredited museums really have a long way to go. I'm not saying we're perfect by any means, but we try. Is, is there an element of, of sharing um, some ideas or, 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 or some objects even? Perhaps? Yeah, to some extent. The, I mentioned accredited museums, and it, it seems to be an us and them situation. You will not have an object loaned to you from an, an, an accredited museum if you aren't another accredited museum. It's, I can understand why in some circumstances, because obviously things have to be got... You know, we, we are looking after these objects, objects. We can't just put them on a, a sunny windowsill and watch them fade away in, in bright light. Um, but yeah, there is an organisation called the Army Museums Ogilby Trust, which is a, a UK-wide uh, organisation, and, and we we get a lot of support from them. A lot of uh, interest in interchange of information between the various people, professionals involved. And I have to say, I am not one of them. I am no professional. I'm an amateur. And um, 
but in terms of the feedback you get from people who come to visit the museum um it's i think it's fairly well known that it, it ranks extremely highly on some some online um ranking systems amongst, amongst yeah, people's feedback it's phenomenal uh from i think it was february last year 2018 we became the top rated visitor attraction based on visitor feedback on on the TripAdvisor website uh incredible and we're still there we're still the number one ranked attraction you know and i don't know how we've done it but obviously we do uh, score highly with our visitors and do you, do you find you get people coming back oh yeah um we, I mean, we start to recognize people in tt and grand prix particularly a lot of the chaps and ladies as well are regular visitors and they usually come in and demand a cup of tea <laughs> um just just one thing you were saying to me just before we came on mike um which I think was, would be an interesting one to include. You were saying that there was a, a gentleman from France who'd visited yeah, this year. Yeah, that's right. Only this morning I got an email from a guy in northern France who lives in Lille, and he came over to the island for the TT, uh, went around our museum, and he spotted uh, an item in the museum about a guy called Robert Arthur Quayle, who was the last, or no, the next to the last Manx lad to die in World War One, And he's buried not far from where this guy lives. And he went to the trouble of going and taking photographs of his grave and the cemetery where this fellow lies. It's just lovely. And he's also offered to take pictures of anywhere, any graves or any things like that, in anywhere in northern France. What a lovely guy. And we do meet him like that. You know, it's so nice to have this network of lovely people who will help. Um, moving towards the future then, um, what, what are the, sort of the, the ideas for the, the next stages of, of the museum? Well, we if anybody's visited the museum recently, they'll see that we're literally bulging at the seams now. We've got nowhere left within the buildings to extend our displays. Every available square inch is full. So the next hope, shall we say, is to extend the museum and put a new building up. It'll involve an awful lot of money. Um, you know, ideally we would like lecture room. Um, I need a new archive space and somewhere for people to sit down and look through our archives and use our uh, computer databases and things like that because at the moment we just don't have anywhere. Um, I'm, our office space is all in uh, my house for which I'm extremely grateful to my partner Elaine for tolerating it. She's a, a wonderful lass and couldn't do it without her. Um, last question then, museum related. You mentioned a bit about the money required. As far as as far as I can remember, it's it's free to enter into the, yes. the museum. So. Yeah, we don't make a charge for entry. Uh, we do uh, ask for donations. We we don't insist on it, and people are very often very generous. So that's how we we make money. We we do get grant assistance from time to time from the likes of the Manx Lottery Trust uh, and the Gough Richard Charitable Trust have been very good to us. Um, but with regard to a new building, we are going to be looking at you know into the hundreds of thousands of pounds and uh, to be quite honest i'm a little bit stumped as to how we go about starting raising that so if anyone out there is a good money raiser um please get in touch we need all the help we can get and um, i must ask just finally um about the award which has been given to you what um well, I mean, I, I presume this is unexpected. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's the sort of thing that other people get. Um, I wasn't expecting it at all. Um, got a phone call while we were on holiday from the Lieutenant Governor. And to be, I thought at first it was a wind-up, but then I, I realised that I did recognise his voice. So, <laughs> yeah, it was true. And, yeah, amazing. And so what, what happens next from that point of view? Do you, have you 
Um, apparently, I await a letter from Buckingham Palace, which gives me a date or the option of going to Buckingham Palace to uh, for the investiture. So that, that, that's all I know at this stage. It's all rather exciting. I must admit, family are, are rather more excited than I am at the thought of going and have a med having a medal pinned on my chest. But <laughs> they're ever so proud of me, and I'm just yeah, yeah, whatever. Which sounds a bit arrogant, but I mean, it is a wonderful thing. And it, it is an honour, and it's it's incredibly humbling to know that people think I've I've done a good job. Um, again, we were speaking just just before. Um, some of the some of the messages you've been getting from from friends and from family and and people who know you, um, fa fairly widespread. As yeah, well. amazing. Um, people who visited the museum over the years have been in touch. Um, from all over the world, incredible. Um, people I was at school with and haven't heard of for probably 40 years, which is incredible since I'm only 27, <laughs> um, been in contact with me. And, you know, the usual start-up is, is that you? <laughs> yeah, are you the same Ivor Ramsden that I knew in the pub many years ago? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much indeed for joining us, Ivor Ramsden, MBE. That's... Uh... A, a, fun, a funny, funny sound to your ears, I'd imagine. <laughs> I haven't got used to it. Yeah, I shan't be using it very often. I must admit, but uh, it's there. If uh, on, on begging letters, I'm sure it'll do a lot of good. The Nation Station, Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. Next to join us in the studio. As Secretary-General of the Isle of Man Commonwealth Games Association for over 10 years, Tonya Lushington guided the association through a raft of financial and other complex challenges. She was also chef de mission for Manx teams competing in Delhi and Glasgow and for youth teams attending the Games in Pune and Samoa. In addition to organising, mentoring and coaching, she's been at the heart of much of the association's fundraising activity for many years and her support to Manx charitable and sporting sectors spans five decades as an administrator and as a competitor. For services to sport and the community in the Isle of Man, Tonya Lushington is awarded an NBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours List 2019. First and foremost, then, to start at the very beginning, um, well, good afternoon, first of all. Good afternoon. <laughs> Where does your, your interest in, in the sporting world come from? Um, I've always been interested in sport ever since I was at school. I've, I was always out there playing, and uh, originally netball and hockey through school years, and and then uh, as I got older, obviously things become uh, a, you, your interests develop in different ways. So, um, but I've always been involved in sport. And so, so team sports first and foremost. Then, what from from a young age, generally yeah, speaking. Yeah, generally, yes. I was always in a team sport, and I think that sort of follows through most of sport as it is, because sport is a team event. Whether you're an individual or whether you're in a team of other players, there's always a team, a raft of people that are supporting you. So it uh, mentions then in the, in the foreword there that you were um, were are a, a competitor and. What sorts of involvement did you have in, in sport on a, on a competitive level? Um, well, I became more competitive when I took up shooting, so I was able to uh, master that a, a bit more professionally. Well, not professionally, but a, a, to a higher standard. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I was very involved with the uh, Clay Target Club for a long time. And In fact, I was secretary there for 12 years before I became secretary of CGA Isle of Man. And just as a correction, I've actually 
just recently stood down as secretary of CGA Isle of Man, Commonwealth Games Association, because I felt it was time for somebody younger to take the baton and take it forward. Um, so, so when and how did you did you get involved with the Commonwealth Games Association? Um, I was approached because I had a um, a huge interest in shooting and had been involved in shooting at various levels, club level, at regional level and uh, federation level. And then somebody said to me, there was a vacancy at the Commonwealth Games Association. Would I be interested? And I said, yes, because I felt it was time to move on from just a single shooting sport to a multi-sport uh, environment. Um, and... You've mentioned a bit about your, your sort of background in, in shooting. There's some involvement in some charitable work as well, is that right? Well, um, the Commonwealth Games Association is a charity. It relies totally on fundraising. And in fact, most sport on the Isle of Man has a huge reliance on charity. So it's very important to uh, fundraise and approach sponsors and corporates and, and see whether you can get support in, in running these uh, events and also supporting the athletes individually it's very important and um, and we're very lucky because the island man has got a lot of charitable uh, support from every de- every department it's great it's often spoken about that the isle of man's in a unique position in the sense of um its geographical location and the fact that you've got to um, well, got to usually you ha- if you want to sort of compete at a high level, you you tend to end up going off island to do so. So, is there an extra pressure in terms of the f- sort of financial pressures on athletes here? Um, it is an extra financial pressure, definitely, uh, but it is an essential requirement because to get to an elite standard, you have to venture off the island. But you can learn the basics here. The facilities here are fantastic, and uh, you can get the encouragement and the initial coaching but even as you become more of elite we know swimmers go off island to compete we know cyclists go off island to compete and they get a higher level of coaching and support and and shooters as well for for a, for a relatively small and contained population certainly in my lifetime we've had quite a lot of success stories of of people who have achieved the highest levels in, in their sport. It's fantastic. Um, we, we, we definitely fight above our weight. And uh, I think the tally at the moment is about 18 medals overall since we started in 1957 at the Commonwealth Games in Cardiff. So I think the Isle of Man really does excel. And the envy, I have to say, of Jersey and Guernsey, because I think it's Guernsey who have no medals. Jersey, I think, has three or four from very early days, but we're well above them. And what is it that makes us stand out and, and fare well against against comparable jurisdictions like those? I think it would be hard to put your finger on it, but I think the enthusiasm of, of coaching staff, of, of your fellow competitors, and generally there's a good sporting vibe on the island. So it's great. And ever since I moved here in 1968, I think... I've, I've been aware of that in any field you take up, whether it's golf, shooting, cycling, mountain biking, swimming. It's a huge sporting vibe. Are, are there any, any highlights for you over, over your sort of tenure of, of people who've done particularly well? Gosh. Well, being a shooter myself, I was extremely keen and, and, and greatly honoured to see Tim Neal do so well because he not only did a bronze medal in 
Delhi, but I think he got a, a, a silver medal in uh, Gold Coast. So that was very moving. And and uh, I also saw, I didn't see Mark Cavendish win his gold medal in Melbourne, but uh, I have seen him perform in the team. So it's it's great to have those role models. Um, and, well, I guess you've said yourself there, the fact that these people are role models competing at the very top level is in turn enormously inspiring for 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 local young people who are looking to achieve the same kinds of things and i think these role models do feed back into the island they have a special attachment to the island it's their families are here obviously and uh, but they do come back on a regular basis and they give their time and support and in some instances financial support to other young athletes coming up through the their stages of development um, a bit then about um, your 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 award. If you if you um, want to tell us a bit about what the feedback's been like from people, first of all. Well, it was a huge surprise. I have to say, it was not expected at all, and it was rather overwhelming. But it's um, I've had a lot of support and a lot of messages of support. I have two sons in the UK, and uh, they were very excited and and supportive too. Um, what, what's happened so far? What communication have you had? And, what, and what's, um, what's still to come? Well, apart from the initial communication from Government House, I now am waiting for further, further information because the medal, uh, or the, yes, the, the award will present, be presented at a later date and, and I think that information will follow. So that's all still to come. So, but at the moment it's just floating in the glory. Um, what comes next for you? Because you've you've mentioned that you, you stepped down recently. Um, are you still hoping to have some some involvement? Uh, probably not in Commonwealth Games, but I hope to sort of share my uh, sort of administrative support somewhere. And um, I think it's important, and it's something that we can all do, whatever work we do. Because I had a business, and I, so with a business background, you can give support to sports clubs, sports associations, and whoever needs you. So it's a, it's a great platform to, to give feedback to the island and, and also your interests, whether you're a spectator. There's always something you can do, whether it's marshalling, whether it's counting, whether it's collecting. You know, it's, it's a great support that we can offer. Um, and what, what made you sort of want to take on that top job of Secretary General and and, and, um, and, go, and go from there? I was ready for a change, I think, and I, I just needed, and I sort of, it interested me to be involved in a multi-sport event, which, whereas before I'd just been interested in a single sport at any given time. So, and I've learned a lot about some sports that I probably would never have learned about. I know a lot more about gymnastics, for example, and even weightlifting. And, and so it's, it's great to expand your knowledge and, and meet different people. Um, will you be working with your successor in the role to, to offer some advice? And, and I've said I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm at the other end of a telephone, so... Uh, my home is on the Isle of Man, and as I said to you before, I've got connections with the Isle of Man. I came over in 1968, but my grandparents and my father were here before. So I'm not mm, born Manx, but mm-hmm. I hope I've been adopted Manx. Um, 
we've spoken a bit about some of the um, the most high-profile success stories you've seen under your tenure. Um, shooting and cycling certainly are two sports which the Isle of Man has, in, in your words, punched above its weight at, if you like. Do you think that those specialisms are going to continue? Is, is there sort of a, a new generation coming through on, on, on those fronts? Um, it's, it's difficult to say. Um, I think it's, it probably will continue because they are followed quite a lot. But we had some very good performances in in Australia, mountain biking. We had good performances in, and uh, there's always a, a an, an undercurrent or subcurrent of boxers coming up through the ranks who who um, do well. We had a very good young boxer did well in in Samoa, and uh, but again, cyclists in in Bahamas they did did well, and uh, so. Cycling seems to sort of pitch up on a regular basis, but we have had shooters as well. Yep. Um, if you if you get people do really well in particular sports, does it then follow that the kind of infrastructure and the coaching of of those sports improves as a result, or or is it the other way around? Perhaps I don't know. I think it gives encouragement to mainly other competitors uh, because it means that you can be one of those elite cyclists or you can be shoot for GB or you can excel in in what you enjoy doing and it it I think the mentoring and the and the um, role modeling is the most important thing I think coaching is improving on the island I think the general standard of of support is improving the dietitians and there's uh, um, psychologists and and various other support and strength and conditioning it's 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 you have to look at the larger picture and be good and fit in everything thank you very much indeed for joining us tony lushington i hope that wasn't too painful (laughs) am i switched off and um congratulations um thank you very much indeed thank you the nation station You're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. Time now for the fourth of our five guests this afternoon. On coming to the Isle of Man in the 1980s, Steve Roden immersed himself in the island's historic, cultural, charitable and political life. From early days as a pharmacist in Laxey, supporting local charities and as a commissioner... uh, through service as an MHK and a minister, his commitment to the people of the island has been strong. He helped to achieve the right to vote for 16- and 17-year-olds. And in the Legislative Council since 2016, he's been an even-handed president of Tinwald. As county chairman of the Royal British Legion, he led them with dignity during the commemorations of the 100th anniversary of World War One. For outstanding service and dedication to the Isle of Man, Steve Roden receives an OBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours list this year. Uh, good afternoon, Mr Roden. First of all. Best of mine. Best Thank of you my. for having me. Um, first and foremost, then, um, tell us a little bit about your background, first of all. Where did the, where did the uh, interest in politics perhaps come from before coming to the Isle of Man? Well, I suppose, uh, really, when I went to university, and we're talking about the early 1970s now, I joined the uh, Edinburgh University Liberal Club and uh, very quickly found myself in the campaign issues of the day. The 1975 European referendum, I was campaigning for Scotland and Europe, 
Um, I became the chairman of the Scottish Young Liberals and uh, after a little while was adopted as the uh, Scottish Liberal Party candidate for Murray and Nairn where we uh, we lived for a while in Elgin and I uh, campaigned in the 1979 uh, devolution campaign of, of that time. So I had been quite involved in, in politics in Scotland. Um, after the 1979 election, goodness, it's amazing to think it's 40 years ago in Murray and Nairn, which I duly lost, um, uh, we actually uh, moved to Bermuda for seven years and uh, I had the opportunity to manage a pharmacy there. As an expat, it w was impossible to be involved in local politics there, so I suppose the interest dwindled a bit. Um, we did make some very good Manx friends who lived there, still friends to this day, and uh, they used to rave about the Isle of Man, said, well, instead of going back to the UK, think about the Isle of Man. So we came here in 1987 with small children and uh, to find excellent schools, a, 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 a wonderful, magical place to bring up a family. And um, I'd managed to save enough to put into a business in, in Laxey. And for the first few years, uh, that, that, that's what I did. And I suppose um, I had joined the pipe band here and was quite interested that they were playing a lot of Manx tunes. And that was my introduction, really, to uh, a distinct Manx culture. But I well remember in 1991, um, there was something called the Clean Sweep Campaign, which uh, the minister was Tony Brown, and it was this uh, idea that local communities would be encouraged to uh, uh, help the villages and the towns by planting hanging baskets and picking up litter. And uh, I, got, I got involved in that and uh, sort of drifted into local politics because uh, I then found myself in Laxey Village Commissioners where um, I stood for, uh, sat for four years, and in 1995, a vacancy arose when Dr. Mann became a member of Legislative Council, and uh, I was persuaded to put myself forward, so I did, and uh, got into uh, Tinwald back in 1995. You've mentioned um, a bit about the pharmacy and your, your pharmaceutical background. That's where your your academic career, I suppose, began. Um, and lots of people, as you've said, will know you through that prism, through your Well, through it, your it was very fortunate because the job I was doing had quite a high public profile, of course, uh, dispensing uh, pills to make people well. And uh, when it came to voting time, given that there's no party political system in the, in the Isle of Man, of course, uh, local recognition was actually quite important uh, but then it's what you do with it thereafter whether you get re-elected of course it, it's entirely up to you but um, Tinwald uh, I, I discovered uh, is quite a unique institution and the Isle of Man I've always said Tinwald is the greatest asset it has because for a, a place like the Isle of Man to be able to legislate for itself in comparison to, this, say, the Isle of Wight or Isle of Anglesey, which simply send one MP to Westminster, has made um, the Isle of Man what it is today. And um, uh, I'm, I'm very proud uh, to have been a member of Tinwald for uh, 
20, oh gosh, 25 years, 24 years, and um, to have put a little something back into the community, which I think has been so good to me and my family. You mentioned a bit, um, both off mic and then just before, that you your first involvement in Manx politics at a local level, um, I think you, you said it came as something of an accident. You sort of sort of fell in to begin with. So was it not your intention to, uh, no, to start I'd, with? No, um, the last thing on my mind when we came here back in 1987 was to get involved in, in politics. I'd been out of it for quite a few years. And as I say, drifted in through Clean Sweep, then the commissioners, and uh, being involved in local organisations um, such as the Lax and Lonan Heritage Trust and the local branch of the British Legion and uh, Laxey Fair, things like that. Um, uh, joining the, 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 putting something back by standing for, for elected office, uh, I felt I could perhaps contribute a bit more uh, to the community. And uh, thus far, I, I hope I have done something. Um, Presumably, that into sticking with that that local theme, then you've overseen quite a lot of change in Laxey first. Obviously, before we come to to your 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 national influence, if you like, as what what are sort of the key differences, perhaps in Laxey from when you first came? Well, it's um, it's always been a, a historic um, heritage centre with lots of visitors, and in recent years, Laxey regeneration uh, has made quite a big difference and. Uh, there are others involved currently as we speak in developing the theme of Laxey Valley uh, as a, uh, a visitor experience to see a lot of the, the historic gems that, that are hidden uh, in Laxey. Um, but it, it's been a, a great place to live uh, as a style of man. And then turning to your, your national involvement then, you had uh, two ministerial uh, ten years administrations in in health and social security and in education, um, and talk us through some of the perhaps highlights from from those years. Yes, um, I found myself when I was <clears throat> first elected as chairman of the planning committee, which was extremely interesting, very uh, contentious work, uh, but it gave a very broad insight into uh, developments in the Isle of Man and what was in the. In, in the pipeline, and I enjoyed that very much. Uh, I became uh, Minister of Education in 1999 and stayed there for five years and uh, enjoyed that immensely, uh, uh, very much going around schools, meeting staff, meeting pupils. And I suppose one of the things I'm very plow, uh, proud to have been associated with uh, was the formation of the Bun School, 2000, 2001. The, the Manx Medium School in St. John's, which gives a first-class bilingual education. And to have seen that develop so well is a great um, source of pride. Also to have been involved with um, the International Business School, as it, as it then was. This was a very innovative idea that uh, we would have higher education, business education on the island. Um, the vision was that perhaps in time it would become a university college. Well, as the years have gone on, we do have Isle of Man College now uh, incorporated uh, by the business school, with the business school, um, as a university college of man, which is a great development. Um, coming to 
Manx politics with a fresh pair of eyes, I suppose, as somebody who'd who'd lived overseas. Do you feel that gave you a different perspective with to, to some of your peers, perhaps in in politics on the island? I, I think so. Um, uh, I've made a lot of Manx friends and. Uh, Manx politicians in Tinwald who had perhaps worked overseas uh, as well uh, in an earlier life um, brought a certain uh, different perspective to, to issues and, and I'm sure it does help when you have experience of, of other places, other systems, other ways of life. Uh, the last thing you want to do is import uh, ideas and tell local people what to do. Uh, but if you can contribute in a balanced manner, I, I think it's helpful all round. Having come, obviously, from a, another uh, Celtic jurisdiction, if you like, there's a lot of perhaps cultural familiarity for you. Would that would that be fair? Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, the Isle of Man has got a rich tradition in its own right, and um, uh, language, uh, music... Uh, dance, all the things that make this a distinctive place, but above all, its own separate, quite individual parliamentary and unique political system, thanks to the Viking settlers, of course. And um, coming to Tinwald, you, you said in a, in a statement to Manx Radio, it was an institution that you held dear, um, and that's obviously been... Um, very much a, a, a passion, I think. Yeah, it's been an immense privilege to uh, to serve in Tinwald, and I think people should perhaps just lay to one side the individuals that are in at any one time. Politicians don't have a particularly good press uh, as as a breed at the moment across the board, and a lot of the the issues that we see uh, in the UK and the US attitudes spill over here, but really as an institution is so important uh, for the future well-being of the Isle of Man and to serve in it is a real privilege. I asked you a bit about how Laxey had changed but on a on a national level um, both in reference to Tinwald as, a, as an institution and, and the island we've overseen well you've overseen sorry an, an awful lot of change. Well there's been a tremendous amount firstly of ec- <coughs> economic development and change for the better in the Manx economy over the 25, the last 25 years. And uh, for that, earlier politicians laid the groundwork for that. But an awful lot of social change as well. And, and I would say change for the better. A lot of the social legislation, when I came here, I, I thought was very out of date and, and very restrictive. And uh, we have moved greatly with the times. I think uh, society has has changed um, in line with the modern world. I, I think the Isle of Man has ad- adapted very well, and it's got sound institutions that enable it to cope with with the change and the challenges that we're bound to to have, particularly uh, as, as uh, the UK exits from Europe. You've you've mentioned the Bunskull, and you've uh, mentioned a couple of other of your your highlights one yeah. one other change um which you had a, a part to play in was was to do with the voting age on the island well it was interesting yes 2006 there was uh, a bill going through the keys um to extend uh, the uh, the rolling registers to make it easier for for voters to to register instead of just once a year and um 
as a parliamentary device, I moved an amendment really as in a back as a parliamentarian as a backbencher, if you like. I wasn't a mini- I was a minister, but I wasn't speaker at that time. So I moved an amendment to the legislation that uh, wherever the uh, the number eighteen appeared in the legislation, i.e. voters 18 years and older, etc., substitute the number 16. And I did this really to test the political waters to see was there any interest or appetite for reducing the, the voting age? Um, because it ha- it, there hadn't been active campaigns about it, but it was something that a number of uh, us in the House of Keys did feel f- fairly strongly about. Um, and my goodness, uh, to my astonishment, the, that particular amendment went through by, um, I think it was 19 votes to four. And uh, it duly got incorporated into the legislation. And uh, there was a mad scramble over the ensuing summer to sign young people up onto the register for the September election. And a great many did. Uh, so those that were interested in politics were given the opportunity to vote uh, young people, wh- wh- which was great. And I was very struck by the parallel of about 125 years before that, uh, when there was a s- similar move to extend the voting register to um, men who not only uh, owned but rented property. And Richard Sherwood, who was an MHK, moved a simple amendment that wherever the word male appeared in the legislation, as in male persons of 21 years or over, strike out the word male, which would have the effect of giving uh, women the vote. Uh, And that is what he did. And that went through 16 votes to three at the time. And that is how the Isle of Man became the first national legislature to give uh, women the vote. It wasn't all women, it was property-owning women who were widows or unmarried, but nonetheless it was a real uh, pioneering start and shows um, how forward the Isle of Man, we forget how forward-looking it it has been and can be. Um, My my final question in terms of politics, um, is there anything you perhaps would have done differently? Or, or would have would have liked to achieve had you had you had another go. I'd, I'd like perhaps to have um, instigated more private members uh, legislation. Um, so some uh, members are very good at doing that and, and very keen. We've seen some good examples of that uh, recently. But 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 I I was pleased from a camp wearing a campaigning hat. I suppose to. Uh, have done quite a, a, a bit with getting the reciprocal health agreement restored to the Isle of Man. If you remember a few years, eight, nine years ago, the Labour government uh, was ending the agreement and it caused quite a political uproar at the time. And um, th- thanks to a lot of political cooperation off-island at Westminster with sympathetic e- MPs, with whom uh, I greatly enjoyed working. I had a part to play, as did others, in seeing that uh, restored. So I, I, I was quite pleased to have been associated with that. But you always wish you could have done more in all sorts of ways, having been a presiding officer as a speaker for 10 years and now as um, um, president of Tinwald, of course, I cannot wear a 
political hat publicly and sometimes have to bite my tongue and uh, uh, not say things I wish I could say uh, in, in an open political forum. I, I know the feeling as a, as a journalist, but um, <laughs> just finally, I've, I've focused um, perhaps predictably on your on your political involvement, but you've also um, undertaken an awful lot of work for, for other bodies on the island and in the community. One to pick out, um, you were a trustee at Manx National Heritage for, for some years, so you've had an involvement in lots of other ways too. Yes, I mean, uh, the, the, the island's culture and the heritage, whether through the Heritage Trust or the, the pipe band itself, um, being able to get local projects off off the ground, like uh, the the Lax and Lawn Live at Home scheme, uh, for example, has given tremendous uh, satisfaction. So there's, there's still lots of opportunities for anybody who is grateful to the island for you know having done something for them to put put something back. Well, Guramayu, thank you very much indeed for for, for joining us. Um, Steve Roden, MB, uh, MB, oh dear, OBE. <laughs> um, we'll join us again after the break. The Nation Station, Manx Radio. Welcome back to our final instalment of this week's Perspective programme. I am joined finally, last but definitely not least, uh, Mitch Murray, CBE. Good afternoon. Pastor Good afternoon. Um, now, first of all, tell us. Um, a bit about your your musical beginnings, if you would. Um, where would, where did your interest first come from? Uh, from women, and trying to chat them up on the beach in the south of France. And I got myself a guitar, as I thought it was a good entrance to the uh, to the world of women. And uh, I used to sit next to them on the beach and and play the. I had to teach myself guitar, and it was very hard. And I ended up with the ukulele because it's got only four strings, so it was easier. And I got bits of old sheet music, and uh, the sheet music in those days, of course, it was the 60s, or, or actually the late 50s, I started thinking about it. And um, and I would get um, old uh, bits of sheet music from the 30s, and all the songs I knew I could I could play and follow the little charts where your fingers go. The ones I didn't know, I had to make things up to that. You know, one day I saw one I didn't know, and the chords seemed to work, and I came up with a little tune that went for it. And I assumed I, that was the tune. And then I found that the tune was totally different, but still good for that chord sequence. And I thought, my God, I'm a songwriter. There we go. That's that's how it all began. So, so you're you're predominantly. By the way, everything went well with the women. <laughs> I wasn't going to ask. But... So, so, um, so predominantly, you're, you're self-taught then. Certainly in the in the beginnings, at least. Yes. But I, I still don't read or write music. And actually, quite a lot of songwriters don't. Uh, there are, if somebody is really good at music and, and technically can do all this stuff, they don't normally uh, find they can write songs, hit songs. They can write, they can score movies and they can do very nice background music. But actually, they're a totally different talent. They're, they're a totally different talent. What you've got to do as a pop songwriter or any popular music, you've got to hit people between the eyes with a tune and make them want to go out and buy it and you've got about seven seconds to hold on to them because if they suddenly waver from that if they lose interest uh, they you know you don't get them back so that's that's what you can't sit there and, and work that out consciously you have to get that into into your technique generally so that every time you're writing you know instinctively Ah, this is dying. This one is rotten. Let's throw it away. Let's start now. Let's cut that line and do that. And that's what you do. And it takes 
takes sometimes days and to that, get to get the knack, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's. I mean, I confess, I'm I'm musically inept. Is there is there a lot of throwing so away? Is, that's the beauty of this. Is, is, is there a lot of discarding in in the creative process? Sure. Um, yeah. Well, the clever ones discard. The other ones pr- persevere with rubbish, and um, they. It's not a good idea. You've got to really cut your losses on those things. And you've mentioned a bit about your your beginnings. Did you go on to have um, training or mentoring from people? No. Um, you you get into it's a knack. I mean, other people think it's a wonderful talent. It, I don't know. I don't think of it like that. It's a knack. Once you've got the knack, you apply that knack every time you sit down and write. Now, the thing I found is that you can sit down one day and have absolutely... You're never going to come up with anything good that day, which is great because you can then go to the pictures and you can play poker and you can have drinks and it's no point wasting your time trying to write music. Once you get the hang of when it's a good day or not, and you mustn't talk yourself into having a bad, uh, a good day... Other times, like Les Reed and uh, Barry Mason, who wrote the Delilah, the Last Waltz, um, Les Reed wrote kind of Hush all over the world. They did, Les and Barry um, wrote a, the beginnings of about six enormous hit songs in one afternoon. So what they did, they came up with these tunes. They were cooking, both of them. So Barry would think of words, Les would think of terrific tunes. They, and fine, and they got a little bit far into that, and then they went on to something else, kept that. And then they came back over the next few days and started building on the songs and turned them all into songs, and they were all enormous hits. That doesn't often happen, but it gives you an idea of, uh, of the way pop songs sometimes come about. And that's what happened with them. So do you, do you find... What to you hell have, with them? What about me? <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you find you have um, sort of purple patches in the, in the creative process whereby you, you, you know, make significant leaps in, in, in your own mind even? I suppose so, but I think we're more concerned with the dry periods when we can't get arrested. Not only can we not write anything good, but if we do write anything good, we, st- we can't sell it. It's just, it's luck. It's, I mean, everybody, you know, people will tell you, uh, oh, luck, luck, the, the harder I work, the luckier I get. It's rubbish. It's all inspiration and it's all luck. And um, anybody who tells you differently, I think they're kidding themselves. So I've been lucky. When, when, or at what point did you realise this was something you were good at? When the money started coming in, <laughs> I said, hello, boys. <laughs> yes, I mean, once, well, you, you, you actually, you're not, you don't sit back in a self-satisfied way ever because you're, you're on a, in a constant battle against people who don't want to buy your stuff and um, try to please the people who do. And so you don't think that much of yourself because most of the time you're, uh, you're, you're writing stuff that doesn't work. You know, so, I mean, really, my, my, I look back and I think, oh, it's an awful lot of stuff. But when I remember, in between each one of those, there's a long period of frustration. <laughs> and, and obviously the, the tastes of people listening to you um, change. Mm. How, That's right. How do creators of music battle that? Best question so far. Got no idea. Uh, some of them can't some of them can't change their style and actually nobody should try all that hard because if you're writing in a in a a contrived style 
uh, it's never going to sound right. It's got to be you. It's got to be natural. Most of my stuff are upbeat, happy, uh, optimistic. Uh, I've written ballads and I've had hits as ballads as well. I've written sort of rock and things like that. But my main stuff are those little tuneful tunes during the pacemakers, Freddie the Dreamers, Herman's Hermits, Cliff Richard, those things which are a very, uh, I mean, that that's my favourite stuff to write. And um, when you're writing, you're actually writing almost like you're hearing it for the first time. Um, and so you, and what you do is you play with it. You think to yourself, oh, I'm going to change the note. I'm just going to go up an octave. This is what you're thinking as you go. And you suddenly surprise yourself. You try to you try to write from behind yourself. It's very difficult to explain, but you have to keep surprising people. And then you have, so therefore you have to surprise yourself as you create it. In Do you know something? I'm very good today. <laughs> I thought so too. <laughs> in the in in the beginning, were there people that you looked up to or aspired to yes. um, to to emulate, perhaps? Yeah, they were particularly well. The American guys and girls they they were writing fabulous stuff. Carol King and Jerry Goffin, and Neil Sedaka, and you know people who I know. You know, I've just over the years they they were terrific. But the uh, but to be realistic, being in London at the time, I looked up to a man called Johnny Worth, who came from a, a vocal group, did a lot of radio and things. And Johnny Worth wrote all the Adam hi- uh, uh, Adam Faith hits. What do you want if you don't want money? Those things, you know, put me. <laughs> a little bit like um, Buddy Holly-ish stuff but it were really strong melodies and that was a big inspiration to me because they just hit you those little melodies they really were good unfortunately he was a little bit of ahead of his time so before the international world of music opened up to britain you didn't make as much money you really didn't get anywhere you wrote you you, you wrote um, a hit song it was a big hit in britain maybe a couple of other english speaking countries but it, they really weren't going to the states uh, you know you'd get australia and new zealand and things like that it was only the beatles who broke the whole thing open and became international and then we all started doing well and that's why the international music business is dominated by brits now because of that that breakthrough um as as a listener to music what were your or what were what are your your tastes and are they in line with the things that you write i like mitch murray stuff (laughs) he's very good (laughs) and uh, i know i'm actually mad about the 30s I, i know it's really silly probably nobody listening knows what i'm talking about but in the 30s they wrote very very melodic stuff they they were they were sort of big bands but not necessarily swing just beautiful music very sincere great lyrics and you look back and you think they spoke really well in those days <laughs> so that's my favorite stuff you know but nowadays i'm getting into uh, certain songs from shows because m- both my daughters are uh, are, are uh, west end stars and um, the latest one maz uh, my uh, younger one is um, playing the lead in mamma mia she opened on uh, on monday night and I so I go to see them, and I like to watch the shows as they develop. And my, Gina was in Chicago and other shows, and I just go and see them a lot. And I see them develop within that stuff, and you start to get a taste for some of the music, not all of it, but some of it. So it's very much in the genes, then, in that case. Um, mm. it, when it comes to 
the creative process behind music are you influenced by the things that you like or are you writing things which you think people want to hear or or, or is it maybe a bit of both I don't um know. i don't know I, I i i don't think it's a good idea to um to write to a formula as such you should be the formula i am the formula and so when I wrote those, they were a bit different for, for those days. And that's why when uh, my song, How Do You Do It, was offered to the Beatles, um, which was my first hit, um, the Beatles didn't want to do it because it was a bit too twee for them. It wasn't, it wasn't you know, cool enough for them. And so they turned it down. Well, they turned it down. George Martin said, you do as you're told. You record this. And they recorded it, and they didn't record it all that well. And um, and so uh, and I, and I heard it. And in those days, they were just a group from Liverpool. And I was like a, a, a budding songwriter. So I said, no, I can't, I can't let it go out. And I stopped it going out. But the Beatles didn't want to do it anyway. And then George Martin was going to re-record it. And instead, um, he gave it to Jerry and the Pacemakers, and they had number one with it. Um, so I got number one before the Beatles. <laughs> um, that obviously will have been one of your highlights. Um, talk us through some of your other your other favourite points, perhaps, if you could. Yeah, well, that started a, a little run of hits with I Like It for Jerry and the Pacemakers follow-up. A couple of uh, You Were Made For Me for, for Freddie and the Dreamers and um, that sort of thing. And then... It started going a bit quiet. I went a bit dry. These things do happen. And so the next one that came up that was really big was uh, Bonnie and Clyde, Ballad of Bonnie and Clyde, Georgie Fame, and um, another number one. And that was, uh, that gave me a big sigh of relief because you don't know if you're finished, if your career is over or not until you get another number one. So I thought, well, I'm going to have to keep doing this number one thing. It's a very good idea. It seems to work well. So, <laughs> so that's always been a favourite of mine as well, um, Bonnie and Clyde. And then later on, we had a few other hits, and then Billy Don't Be a Hero, which was a very, very big hit all over the world. And uh, meanwhile, you know, there were three number ones in America. That was uh, Billy Don't Be a Hero, Night Chicago Died, and uh, the early one was um, I'm Telling You Now, Freddie and the Dreamers, and five number ones in this country, and lots of number twos. You've, you've that was just nerves. <laughs> you've uh, you've <laughs> mentioned you mentioned a bit before that the purple patches and when things are going well are less important than the than the dry patches, if you like, or the or the, the lower points. Have there been times where you have have questioned yourself or or, or, or thought about perhaps giving up or trying something? Yes, different? you do that every time you get a a, a dry period. You tend to do that. You think, am I kidding myself now? Is it over? Um, in the end, for me, I decided when to stop writing. You know, I mean, there's always the possibility that I'll do it again. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to do it. I might be wired up to something, but when I do it next, but uh, but you sort of tend to uh, you you tend to know if the market. Um, actually, to summarise it, if I don't see a market in what I'm writing, I can't really do it. And that's everything has changed so much that I can't just sit down and write and make demos like the old days and take them to various people. It doesn't quite work like that anymore. So because of that, it's taken it's taken a, a bit of the structure away, you know. But no problem. Always uh, always do other things. I guess 
the obvious question next is how do you then manage things like technological changes because the industry looks very differently now mm. to to how it did when you were kind of first starting out well i managed to change and get into the bit of the technical stuff until about the nine the early 90s i think and after that it started running away <laughs> from me and also it's getting in the way uh, the technical stuff it starts to get in the way of creating songs. You know, when you sat down with a little ukulele and played three or four chords only, and on that you started creating a, a song with strong melody, great lyrical ideas. And if you've got to put that together with with technical stuff and worry about the, and then marketing it, uh, mar marketing it as well, it just kills the whole effect. You know, that's that's when change is complete. You say that writers mustn't have a formula, but as a listener, I would say that a lot of modern pop songs very much are written to a formula. So perhaps it's been flipped on its head a bit. Well, I don't know. It depends how well they're doing. In my day, we used to sell... A hit would be uh, five, 600,000 in this country alone. And I would sit there and I'd get the figures in, and 45,000 before lunch was not uncommon. So if you talk about success, that... Without a, without a formula, and when I say without a formula, of course there's a bit of a formula, but it's got to be, it's got to be something that you're loving yourself, and you want. That's the sort of song you want to hear. That is the one you're writing, and then if you've got that little bit of common thread with the public who, who are listening to it, that's that's the successful bit. If you sit and write a formula, oh, it's time now to do some high notes here, and then we'll push this in. The, that doesn't work. That becomes a contrived piece of mess. And I think that's been happening. Um, when people are writing songs these days, they are nearly all performers. They're performers as well as songwriters. And they're writing in a different way. And they're writing for their act. And they're writing for, um, you know, for, the, for, for being seen by the public. It's a totally different feel. And it works for a little bit, but it doesn't work for... I mean, I've been doing it for, you know, 50 or, or more years. So, you know, it's, it's not the same anymore thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, mitch murray cbe congratulations oh, like say it again <laughs> cbe it's thank a nice it sounds good commander of the uh, you know it stands for that commander of the most excellent order of the british empire congratulations just can't find anybody to command <laughs> nice to speak to you